They say you can learn a lot from a person by how they live, by watching their actions and reactions, how they respond in the moment, what they do in the face of opposition. And if this person is worthy of imitation, worthy of becoming like, worthy of taking our cues, the only way then is to get to know them by following their directions and by listening to their instructions. And if we want to be just like Jesus, we need to get to know him too. We need to read how he responded in the moment, what he did in the face of opposition, how he lived, how he spoke, his actions and reactions. You want to be just like Jesus? Follow him. I mention quite often that the reason we teach through books of the Bible here at Grace, and I give various reasons, but one is to understand the context of what's going on in the story and the, uh, the, the narrative. Because if you just kind of pull things out by themselves, sometimes you miss the impact. And that's so true of the topic, the story, that the narrative we're talking about today. I don't think I've ever heard the story of the rich young ruler in context of last week's sermon. It's the part that follows right after the child illustration, and then he goes to the rich young ruler. And these fit together beautifully. And so if you weren't here last week or just as a refresher, I know it's been a long week and a lot happened since then. I've, I, uh, I'm going to have uh, a couple of helpers come up here, ask Jake Middall and his little daughter uh, McKinley. McKinley and Jake, come on up here. Jake, I need you to come on up here. All right, uh, stand right here. This is like the cutest little girl ever. Can you, can you climb up here? You know, like walk up here at the top so they can see you. All right? Jake, come up with her. I don't think she's going to get uh, scared or embarrassed, but uh, it's good to have you up here too. Stand up by her. And so here's what I want you to do. Uh, you stay there. I'm going to bring something over here for you. And so last week, Jesus talked about how that we had to become like a little child to enter the kingdom of God. And I'm going to just read a couple of those verses just to remind you. Go ahead and put those on the screen, if you will. And uh, Last week, we talked about uh, where... Jesus uh, was inviting kids to himself, and the disciples didn't like that. And Jesus said, let the children come to me. Don't hinder them, for such belong to the kingdom of God. And then he said, truly I say to you that whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child, you won't enter the kingdom of God. And so we talked about how that a little child uh, brings us just a simplicity, this helplessness to the, 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 the equation, that, that we as adults... We walk into a situation with thinking, you know, how is this going to impact me, uh, my confidence, my lack of confidence, uh, my merit, my ability to earn, achieve. But a little child does none of that. A child just is, is helpless, totally dependent upon the grace of her father. We talked about that at length last week. And so I want to think about this idea of getting into the kingdom of God, entering the kingdom of God. And so I brought this little prop here, and you know what this is for, right? What are you going to do? Crawl right through there. Yeah, go ahead and do that. Crawl right through there. All right, Dad, just follow her through, all right? Just kidding. Um, just go on through. Yeah, look at that. And so she just, she humbled herself. She got down on her hands and knees, and she crawled helplessly through this little tunnel, all right? And so I want you to get that, that, that impact that Jesus is trying to get us to comprehend, a, a, having like a little child, just a helplessness. Just a simplicity, a humility like a little child. And he says, these are the kind of people that make up the kingdom. Not people who think they earn it, that think they merit it, think they deserve it. 
think they've done something. It's a child who just simply follows instructions, comes to Jesus, and he says, these are the kind of people that make up my kingdom. Well, today, uh, the scenario changes. He's leaving that place, and he's approached by this rich young ruler who asks him, what, do I, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And so to continue this illustration, i got another prompt here, uh, McKinley. So stay right there. I'm going to get something else here. Your dad will like this. I brought a big check, okay? I've got a big check. We're going to make this out to you. Hold that right there. So we're going to make that out to you, and we're going to say Jake, and you're going to have to spell mid-all for me, M. All right, and let's just make it let's even number a million dollars here, okay? Is that cool? Yep, 12, 12, 1, already December. All right, we'll sign this Chip Perry. <laughs> he's the uh, accountant for our, our uh, yeah, he's in charge of the money here. All right, and so here's the check, all right? Now, here's what I want you to do, McKinley. I want you to crawl through the tunnel while holding on to this, okay? All right, so just hold on to that and work your way right through there, okay? Go ahead and go for it. No help, Dad. You can't help her on this one. She's got to do it. This is my neighbor. She's a pretty determined little girl, so if anybody can do this, she's going to do it. Go ahead. Can't get it? We can't help you. You're on your own here. It's okay. It's okay. Come on out. Give her a big, big hand, all right? Dad, sorry. You had to get through before you got the check. All right, thanks, Jake. All right, we'll leave this right here as a prop to remind us. Thank you very much. Give me a hug. You're special. You're so cute. Thank you. And so this is going to be a visual reminder throughout this message of what Jesus is getting at today. Clearly, clearly, if you know the story of the rich young ruler, he thought he could drag something into the kingdom of God. But that wasn't the case. So let's turn to Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 27. Mark 10, 17 through 27. And the big idea today is great wealth often prevents helplessness, childlike dependence, and humility. Great wealth often prevents helpless, childlike dependency and humility. Let's look at this passage. And as he was setting out on his journey, this is Jesus and his disciples, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Do not honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, 
then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but with God, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word that wakes us out of our slumber, out of our complacency, and it reminds us of your values. It reminds us of the truth that we desperately need to live this life in a way that will provide purpose and bring meaning and, and be anything that matters at the end of our lives if we adhere to your, your truth and obey your, your word and trust your promises. And God, for those who this week have made some bad choices and bad decisions or they find themselves today here frustrated with themselves or angry with their situation, God, I pray today they'll release that and trust you completely. God, pray for those of us who maybe are trapped by materialism and wealth and don't even understand the hold that it has on us. God, may today be a moment of your truth just taking light in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. For those who were of any age around 9-11, that was a pretty significant event. If you were a child, you may not have known really the impact that that event made upon our lives. There was life for us who grew up before you know, after the Vietnam War, after the Korean War, after World War II, which were significant events for some of you, um, th th those events were defining. But for 9-11, that was defining for our generation. That was a huge, it, it was like for a long time, it was life before 9-11 and life after 9-11. And, and kind of get that illustration in your head today, because for the people who were alive during Jesus' time, there was kind of a, a, a really firm divider in their minds for what was holding out in the future, what would, what would become of the future. There was the present age, the, the time they were living there now, and then the age to come. So the present age and the age to come were two really, really big markers and, and important things in their mind. And so what their, their mindset was, this present age that they lived in was a time where evil would run rampant, that, that that evil oftentimes appeared to be conquering good, that unrighteousness and infidels and Gentiles were ruling God's people. But there was going to come a day where those who trusted and believed and, 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 and would uh, put their faith and hope in God, that one day he would come and bring a Messiah and make all the wrongs right again, that he would do, have a, a resurrection of the dead and he would have a, a new spring where all of a sudden, life would be so different. The righteousness and the justice and the peace that were promised throughout the Old Testament, these things would come to pass. But in the present age that they lived in, sin and, and injustice and oppression, those things were ruling. And good people suffered and wicked people got away with it. But in the age to come, all that would change. God would rule. And this was the idea of the age to come, the kingdom, the future. And this was the pressing question on people who were alive that, that believed during that time, particularly the Jews we're talking about here, was, can I be sure I'll be one of those who will inherit this future kingdom, this age to come? Do, how do I know whether I'll be included in that? And so that's kind of the backdrop for this man as he runs up and he kneels down before Jesus. He wants to know, hey, am, am I going to get into the future kingdom? Am I going to inherit eternal life? This age to come, will I be a part of it? So look at verse 17 again. He says that he, he came up to Jesus, ran up to him, and he knelt before him, and he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Why do we call this guy the rich young ruler? Well, it comes from a couple different books of the Bible. Matthew refers to him as young. Luke refers to him as a ruler. And Mark refers to him as wealthy. So we put it together and we get the rich young ruler. And I think the key to this passage is found in the question that Jesus asked him in response to him calling Jesus a good teacher. He recognizes Jesus as somebody special. Good teacher. You're a good rabbi. You're a good teacher. And obviously... We've talked about this, and obviously you know this. Many people in our society today, they see Jesus the same way. He's, he's a good teacher. He's a prophet, or he was a good guy. He, he had a lot of wisdom, but the Messiah, God, not so sure about that, right? And so that's kind of something that permeates our society as well. And so this guy, he recognized Jesus as being special, but clearly Jesus is going to press him on what he means by this idea of good. And so... He comes to Jesus and basically he's asking, how do I save myself? How, how, do I, how do I save myself? How do I get through to the next life? How do I inherit this eternal life? And common theme would have been during this time period as well, first century Jews would have thought that if they, they could obey the Mosaic law, they could keep it to justification. That if they kept it good enough, that they would eventually be part of the coming kingdom, the age to come. I don't think they believed that, that they needed perfection but they believed that they had to really, really work hard in order to accomplish that. And, and clearly, at this time, there wasn't just one mindset. There were multiple sects, and, and we know about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and there were others during this time period. And each one kind of had their own spin on what that meant and what that looked like. But the, So the bottom line during that day, if you went up to one of those people and, the, and you asked them, how do I inherit the age to come? They would give their take on, here's how you obey the law, and then you should also come and join our little tribe, our little group. But Jesus does something totally different. Jesus asks him a question. Jesus does this a lot. He turns it around and asks him, and he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So this guy says, good teacher, and Jesus says, hold on. What do you mean by good? You know, we don't do that, do we? Hello, how you doing? Oh, hold on. What do you mean by how am I doing, right? I mean, that seems really awkward when this guy's trying to make a conversation and Jesus, like, brings it back a step and says, hold on, let's talk about your words here because they're important. Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God. Now, maybe you're newer to church, you're newer to faith, you're newer to the Bible, and you think, well, I thought Jesus is God. So why would he say that no one's good except for God? Well, Jesus definitely isn't denying his deity here. He's not denying that he's not good. Uh, but what the rich young ruler misses is the point that he, never, that he never addresses in this conversation. Jesus asks him this question, but he never, ever circles back around and asks, answers what Jesus just asked him, which was, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. That's the key to understanding this passage. And so Jesus was immediately getting this man to think about what he means by this idea of good. Jesus is saying, here's the standard. Okay, you need to understand this. Only God is good. Here's the standard. Only God is good. Think back last week when the child and we see God and it's insurmountable. God's there. We're here. We cannot measure up. And that's the point of the gospel. And Jesus is pushing him here saying, look, only God is good. And his standard is perfection. Do you really measure up to this? And so Jesus is, again, not denying his own goodness or divinity. But what he does, if you want to take this down on your notes, is he does, uh, he's asking this guy, God, does he recognize me as good? Because he recognizes, does he recognize him as God? 
So does the man recognize Jesus as good because he recognizes him as God? I don't think so. I don't think this guy recognizes Jesus as God. He recognizes him as a good teacher. And then secondly, Jesus is saying, no one is good but God, and therefore you cannot rely upon your moral behavior to inherit eternal life. Nobody's good but God, so you can't rely upon what you've accomplished and what you've done and what you bring to the table. Again, the little child illustration Jesus just gave. Are you coming as a little child, or is you, are you coming as someone who wants to show their credentials? Clearly, we're going to see that he wants to show his credentials. So Jesus takes him straight to the law, and he takes him truthfully to the easier commands of the law, the, the back half of, of the law, which is the ones of how people relate to other people. And he asks him in verse 19, he says, You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And the guy's pretty pleased with himself. Look at verse 20. And he said, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. He's, he replies, I've been doing pretty good for, pretty many, for, for a lot of years. Since I've been a young guy, I've been following this meticulously. I've been trying to do what I'm supposed to do. In Matthew's account to this, he adds a little expression. He says, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? So he asks, am I missing anything? And so this young guy was obviously pretty religious. He was pretty sincere about his pursuit of morality. His problem was that he considered himself pretty much faultless concerning the law. Concerning the law of Moses, he thought he had checked all the boxes, dotted all the I's, crossed all the T's, and truthfully, in an external sense, what he said was probably true. He was an impressive, morally, he was an impressive dude. He was an impressive guy. Anybody think of another person in Scripture who was kind of like that? The Apostle Paul. When the Apostle Paul was reading off his credentials in Philippians 3, 6, he said, as to the righteousness under the law, he said, I was blameless. So, so as far as keeping the law with intense and, and, and purpose and intentionality and preciseness, Paul, as well as this young rich ruler, says, I'm doing a pretty good job. I, I'm, I'm doing the stuff. He had worked hard for God's approval and his record was pretty much spotless. And there was truly a sincerity and an earnestness about this guy. And I think that honestly moved Jesus. I think as he told Jesus this stuff, Jesus is literally moved with compassion. Look at verse 21. He says, and Jesus looked at him. He loved him. Now, we know Jesus loves everybody, right? But there's something about the text here that just relays this, this, this spirit that Jesus looked at this guy. And he, he really felt empathy for him because he misunderstood and he, here he was trying his best, trying his hard, good intentions, a good guy, but nevertheless misled and misunderstood what the gospel was all about. So Jesus challenges his unrealistic view of himself and also, plain and simple, his bad theology that he had because the demands of God's law are far deeper than just outward obedience. We can appear like we do all the stuff and we get it right, but the law points out something deeper Jesus shows us in the Sermon on the Mount. Think about the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus walked through and he said, oh, you haven't murdered? Okay, but you know, if you've looked uh, if you've looked on someone with hate and anger, it's the same as murder. Oh, you've not committed adultery? Good for you, right? Have you looked on a woman to lust after her? Because it's the same. Because Jesus cares about the heart. Jesus is piercing to the heart. And so Jesus looked at him 
And he loved him, and he said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you, are, you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. So Jesus takes him to task on the very first commandment. Exodus 23, you'll have no other gods besides me. So Jesus is saying to him, so you say you kept the law? Let's look at just the first, the first one. No other gods before me. Because Jesus knew he had an idol. And that idol was his wealth. And so many people look at this passage and they think that Jesus is adding more law. And they look at the Sermon on the Mount and say, There's, Jesus is adding more law. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus was emphasizing the law as an illustration of the perfection of God. Who God was. His perfect standard. His holy standard. And you know, if the guy can truly, truly keep it all, then he could escape sin's penalty. But that if is a big if, right? I mean, it's impossible. No one can do it. No one can keep the law. And Jesus gave that on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you can't, you can't do it. It's impossible. So when the man responded that he had met the law standard, Jesus just simply touched on the one issue that proved the man didn't measure up to God's holiness. So not only did he break the first commandment against having other gods before the true God, but this, great, this man's great wealth prevented this helpless, childlike dependence that Jesus had just talked about and said that was necessary for the, to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus was showing him the standard. Here's the standard. And you're looking saying, am I doing enough stuff to get there? And Jesus had just got through saying, humble yourself like a little child. You want to enter the kingdom? I'm looking for somebody who's helpless, dependent. They understand it, that they can't measure up and then get there. So was he serious? Yes, absolutely. Was he religious? Was he honorable? Did he attend church? Did he give his tithe? Did he volunteer for ministry? He did all those things. But all week long, what was he consumed with? He was consumed with wealth. His money ranked ahead of Jesus. His desire for prosperity ranked ahead of God. And this is confirmed by what happens next. Look at verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possession. The man was not willing to follow Jesus, yet that meant that he had to give up his wealth. Because he didn't love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He loved himself and his money far more. And so for far from keeping all the commandments that he had claimed, the man was just like everyone else. He was a sinner. And so maybe you find yourself here today. You think that you've done all the good stuff. You're a pretty good person. You look around and you compare to other people. And you think, you know, I'm not doing too bad. I'm in church. Look at all these other people who aren't in church today. I give a pretty good amount of money. But yet, you don't really come to the realization that, that you're a sinner. And all these things do nothing to earn your favor or merit before God. God doesn't look at you and say, wow, you're doing well. Keep up the good work. You're going to get there. You're going to get in. What does he do? He says, you're missing the point of the gospel because the standard's there. Enter like a little child, helpless, broken, humble. You can't do it. You can't measure up. And then look what happens next. Jesus turns this into a teachable moment. He looks around and he says to his disciples, the 12 for sure, maybe more that were there. 
And imagine that. He looks them right in the eye and he challenges them. He says, hey, are you going to remain faithful to me? Or will the pleasures of the world, the materialism of the age, will that draw you in as well? Or are you going to stick with me, guys? Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. How difficult. How difficult it is to get into eternal life with a bunch of zeros at the end of our bank accounts. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying it's not impossible, but he says it's difficult. Why does he say that? Is he condemning wealth? Well, I think if we look in Scripture, we see that there were wealthy people who were great godly men. Abraham, Boaz, Job. In the New Testament, there was a guy named Joseph of Arimathea who was wealthy, and God never condemned him for his wealth. So Jesus is not condemning wealth, and he's not even recommending poverty here. Because poverty does not deliver your heart from the love of money, does it? Poverty doesn't deliver you. Is that true, Buzz? In Africa, does, does poverty deliver their hearts from the love of money? Absolutely not. I mean, some of the, the, the greediest people I've ever met are some of the poorest people I've ever met. But let's be sure we don't let ourselves off the hook here because Scripture constantly warns against the greed of riches. And wealth is so dangerous because it breeds confidence in ourselves. And it has this addictive quality about it that just sucks us in. Even as a kid, I was only probably eight, nine years old, and one of my neighbors, he, he would come down periodically and play with us. His name was Chuck Stoniker. I remember his name clearly. He's about a year older than me. And one day we were out in the yard, and we just finished playing, and he, he said to me, I, I, we were talking, you know, as kids do, about what do you want to be when you grow up or something, and he says, I want to be rich. I was like, really? He's like, yeah, because rich people, you, you, you can do anything you want. You can have anything you want if you're rich. And, you know, as a kid, I'm sitting here scratching my head. I was like, really? I, anything? And I, and I begin to think about it. I'm like, I guess that's pretty, pretty true, right? They, you can, physically speaking, materialistic speaking, you can gain anything you want if you have enough money. And Chuck made a point, and, and, and he shows us today really why the sin of wealth agreed that leads to this accumulation of wealth and this desire to put it above God, why that's so dangerous. Because what do we say here all the time? The DNA of sin is what? Is selfishness. The DNA of sin is selfishness. And what does great wealth allow you? It allows you the ability to do whatever you want, whenever you want to do it, and get whatever you want. Where I want to go, I can do whatever I want to do, achieve whatever I want to achieve. Like Chuck Stoniker told me, I can do it all if I have enough money. And so it has this addictive quality, and it breeds this confidence in self. And it's so easy if we're wealthy and we're able to, to achieve whatever we want, we can just push God aside because there's no dependence on him. There's no need to pray to God for our daily bread and depend upon him. And so think about, let's, let's really look personally here for a second. Can you say no to your impulsive wants and desires? I know this is just unfair after Black Friday, right, to even to talk about this. i got Cyber Monday coming tomorrow, right? Can you say no to your impulsive wants and desires? I mean, the world offers us everything we could ever possibly dream of, want, and need. And we can justify the next thing, right? I, I got to have the iPhone 11. I got to have that next thing. I got to do this because I need, I need, I need, right? I need these things to, to, because that's just the world that I live in. And so his disciples were amazed at Jesus' words. What words? 
it's difficult for those people who have the resources to get whatever they want to enter the kingdom of God. His disciples were amazed. Wealth is dangerous because it leads us to depend upon ourselves and not upon God. And so Jesus continues as his disciples, they stand there in disbelief and shock because to, to them, just like maybe for some who have bought into this lie that is taught today on the prosperity gospel, which says that basically if you're right with God, then God's going to bless you with health and wealth and materialism. And that was kind of prevalent during their day as well. It's nothing new that this rich young ruler, they looked at this guy and they thought, look, he's doing all the right stuff. And then God's clearly blessed him with all this materialism. And so if, if he doesn't get in, Jesus, who's going to get in, really? I mean, truthfully, he's like the, the prototype. He's like the perfect example of somebody maybe who they aspired to be like. God has just poured out his blessings upon this guy. And so this rich young ruler, if he was being rejected, my goodness, you see why they asked the question, who can get in? And Jesus says, he reiterates his point. He says, again, he said to them, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel, he picked out a very large animal they would have been well aware of, and he said, for a rich guy to get in the kingdom of God, it's easier for that camel to go through a little eye of a needle. And clearly Jesus was saying something that was completely outrageous and an overstatement deliberately in order to make his point. He was using hyperbole to make a re, this ridiculous comparison because he knew that he had to shock them. He had to get their attention. And some people had tried to water this down over the years by saying, oh, well, there was this gate in Jerusalem and that was kind of the needle gate and a camel was tight fit. I don't, I don't think if you really, really study that out, that's the case. Some of you have heard that before. I've heard it many times. I think the truth is Jesus was saying that this, you got this big animal and you have a little tiny opening and those who have a great, great deal of materialism and wealth are going to have a hard time getting through. And so the, the truth of the matter is Jesus is saying wealth isn't an asset. Truthfully, it's a handicap. Think about that. Wealth isn't an asset when it comes to the kingdom of God and eternal life. It's a handicap. And we look at the wealthy like they're privileged, don't we? I mean, I can assure you, everybody in live area that lives there looks at us like we're privileged. They look at us like we're special. If you've ever been to a foreign country, you know how Americans are viewed. But according to Jesus, the rich are the underprivileged. The rich and the wealthy are the underprivileged because they are very unlikely to humble themselves. They are very unlikely to come as a little child admitting their need because wealth gets you whatever you want. And so Jesus, again, doesn't say it's impossible for wealthy people to, to be saved, but he says it's difficult to have that helpless, dependent disposition like a little child. Those who have everything, why do they need? You know, I went to a funeral recently. Chip Perry did preach the funeral. It was a great job. But it reminded me of this gentleman who, uh, the funeral, he, he made a profession of faith right within weeks of his death on his deathbed. 
And it reminded me that even those who have wealth and those who have things in this world, when they get to that point, they realize they can't take any of that with them. That there's something a lot more important and a lot bigger than the accumulation of wealth that they've had on this earth. And those things have been obstacles. And unfortunately, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, well, then that's cool. I can live my life however I want. And then on my deathbed, I can, you know, put my faith in Jesus and I'm in, get the best of both worlds. You know, not very many people get that chance, do they, of being on their deathbed and be able to have the gospel delivered to them crystal clear and laid out for them. And them sitting there going, I realize that's not getting me anywhere. And that money in the bank and that IRA and that, all that stuff that I invested in, I'm not taking any of that with me. None of that's going. It's all staying here. I need something more. Let me show you the gospel. You see, at that point, they're childlike a lot of times. They know they have a need for something bigger than themselves. So what about you? I, I, I think at 1 Timothy 6.17, Paul said to Timothy, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who provides, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And so he says, be careful what you set your hopes on, because this stuff will vanish away. And lest at this point we think about, again, Bill Gates or Warren Buffett or somebody, and we think there's the wealthy, there's the powerful. We're the wealthy. We're the powerful. Most of us in this room today can pretty much afford most of the things that we want. Yeah, there's some dreams out there that we have that we'd love to pull off. But for the most part, we can get what we want if we want to get it bad enough. Let me ask you, is that pushing out your love for God? Your pursuit, your idolatry, your love of maybe not when you think wealth, because you're not pursuing wealth necessarily, you're just pursuing that thing. You're just pursuing that life. Or that retirement. See, we begin to substitute in some of the things that we're actually dreaming about versus just wealth in general. Then it becomes a little more personal to us. We, it makes more sense to us that maybe those things are the idols that Jesus would call out if we were here. And he would say, oh, you want to follow me? Let, me? let me just help you out here, okay? Let me give you some advice here. If you want to enter the kingdom of God, you can't take that beach house with you. Well, that's what I want, God. I mean, I think about the number of people I can serve in that beach house. That's what I want. That's what I dream about all the time. And that's what I fear that I won't be able to accomplish. Look at what you fear most. That's probably what you worship. Look at what you dream about and where your mind goes in those empty times. That's probably the idol that Jesus would call out and say, are you, are you really, really longing for me? To follow me, or are you just really living for your dreams and desires? That's hard, isn't it? That's difficult, because it's tough to have God dreams, Jesus' kingdom dreams. Because we have to get really small in those dreams, and really insignificant a lot of times in those dreams. And God becomes the hero. As the song we just sang, like the, the, the God who made it all, who came to us to give us the way for salvation. He's the one who rules it all. He's the great I am, not us. And so 
what about us? Are we pretty wrapped up into our materialism to the point where we have idols in our life? I think this has to be really a Holy Spirit thing in our hearts for us to really, really come to terms with that because I don't think it comes real natural to identify those things. I think it is one that, and, and, and it's fitting that we have communion today where we can distill our hearts, still our minds, still our actions, and allow the Holy Spirit just to, to, to begin to remind us and, and to, to help us think through some of those things in our lives. Because if we just hear the sermon, we're out the door, we'll probably forget it in 10 minutes. But God wants you to be still, and he wants you to think through this. And the disciples asked, who can be saved? If this guy is not getting in Jesus, who's getting in? You just turned away a perfect candidate, and Jesus says, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Humanly speaking, nobody can be saved. Nobody can measure up. Nobody can earn it. Nobody can achieve it. Nobody can merit it. The faith like a little child. But by God's power and grace, a camel can go through the eye of a needle. Isn't that a great thing? I'm glad that's possible because I have to put myself into this rich category just like you probably have to put yourself into this rich category. I'm glad that by God's grace, a camel can go through the eye of a needle. And God can take those who have materialism and greed at the heart of everything you do. He can take that and he can allow you to let go of those idols and you can be saved. This rich young ruler, think about it. His wealth, he could accomplish pretty much anything that he wanted. He was type A, he was driven, he was connected. He could have pretty much afford everything. But the one thing that he couldn't buy, Jesus offered it to him as a gift. And he walked away sad. He couldn't accept it. He couldn't deal with the truth. Because he loved his idol more than he loved Jesus. He loved his stuff more than he loved following Jesus. So if you're an unbeliever here, here's the message to you today. Are you relying upon your wealth and your, I mean, and your, I'm sorry, your wealth but, or your merit, your, your works, your morality, your righteousness? Are you, are you kind of counting on that stuff maybe that in the day that that's what's going to get you into the kingdom? That's what's going to get you eternal life? Well, the rich young ruler shows us it's not possible. That it's all about grace. It's all about what Jesus did for us on the cross. You can't measure up. Helpless like a little child. And then Christians, as we go right into the communion time, I want you to just pray and ask the Holy Spirit, reveal my idol to me. Show me where my idol is. Show me what I'm putting ahead of you. Show me the thing that if you were sitting here today, you would say, you need to consider this. That's become way bigger than my kingdom in your life. You used to dream about what you could do for the kingdom. Now all you do is dream about this. Where does your mind go when you have nothing else to think about? What gets you up in the mornings? Is it God use the resources that I have for your kingdom or is it let me use these for my pleasure my abilities my pleasure and prosperity or is it God it's for you 
That's a, that's a hard turn. It can only be done through grace. It, it's an all a gift of grace. So let's pray. And, and, and after I'm finished praying, we're just going to have a time of stillness, of quiet. And parents, if your kids are in here with you and you need to talk to them about communion, what it is, and if they're not ready, explain to them why, that's fine. But otherwise, let's just be still before God. And let's, let's seriously, let's allow the Holy Spirit honestly to speak to us today. This is serious stuff. It's big stuff. It's important. And let's don't just live our lives ignorant to the words of Jesus. God, we pray today that you will stir in our hearts, stir my heart, God. I ask you, Holy Spirit, to, to look and, and to peer into the attitudes and the motivations that drive me. And God, I pray that you'll reveal those idols in my life, the things that I really dream and desire more than I dream and desire your kingdom. And God, I pray for our church. God, may we name specific things that we are putting ahead of you and ahead of your glory. And God, help us not to squander and waste our lives on worthless and pointless things and be ashamed, even denied at the end of life because we worship something more than we worship you, that our treasure and our hope was in something other than Jesus Christ and his gift of salvation. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that those of us who know you, God, even with our wealth and the handicap that brings, that you still have shown your light to us and given us your gospel. And may that be the passion of our souls. In Jesus' name.